I may be struggling to read this, but I'm using a magnifier, so I hope it works. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have my permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all knew the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I am conformed to the strict, strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Mm -hmm. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went one, from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, I was on the road. I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place amongst those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. 
I preach that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day, so I stand here and testify to a small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer, and as the first right, and as the first rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defence. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What am I saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice, because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose, and with him, the governor and Bernice, and all those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if it had not been appealed to, if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is the word of the Lord. Brilliant. Thanks, uh, Margaret, for reading there. Great job getting through that uh, long passage. Well done, especially with the magnifying glass. <laughs> um, do keep that open, uh, Acts 26, on uh, page 1123, uh, as we go through that together. Uh, now, when somebody talks about a contrast, uh, it means a, a difference, doesn't it? Uh, especially when that difference is very noticeable. If I was to say salt... <laughs> Tom's chuckling because he got this wrong this morning. If I was to say salt, you might say? Sugar. Brilliant, sugar. You wouldn't say sugar, would you, Tom? <laughs> if you were to say wet and dry, cold and yeah, warm, uh, dog and cat. Brilliant, great. In that chapter, uh, read by Margaret, we get some contrasts um, like those that Luke is drawing our attention to. And this morning, I just want to look at three contrasts. Uh, and they're very noticeable, and they might appear strange to us, um, but they draw out some really important truths. Um, they should be on the screen now, so this is what we're going to be looking at this morning. First uh, contrast is this. Prison is usually associated with guilt, yet Paul continues to be in prison despite his innocence. So he's guilty, um, but he's in prison despite his innocence. Paul is the accused on trial, yet he doesn't act like the accused. And thirdly, it seems like God is out of control, but actually is firmly in control. Three strange contrasts. So first of all, that, that first one there, prison usually associated with guilt, yet Paul continues to be imprisoned. Um, you remember a few weeks ago, probably only in Acts 23, Paul is uh, transferred from 
uh, Jerusalem to Caesarea because uh, there's an attempt on his life. Uh, And then he gets transferred to this Roman governor called Felix. And uh, in chapters 23 to 26, uh, there are three trials that Paul has. Um, Three courtroom dramas that he has to go through. Uh, In chapter 24, he's before Felix. In chapter 25, he's before Festus, who succeeded Felix. And here in chapter 26, he is uh, before King Agrippa. Three trials of an innocent man. And we know that he's innocent. If you look at verse 32 of chapter 26, Agrippa says this to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Paul is innocent, yet he continues to be held in prison and continues to be tried. I don't know if you're familiar with the, uh, the double jeopardy rule in uh, English law, um, that you can't be tried for the same crime twice. Um, only applies to certain crimes now. But, you know, so if you get, uh, you're tried for theft, uh, you go to court, but you are found not guilty, um, even if the police later on find new evidence that shows you did it, you can't be tried again for it. There's a great movie in the 90s, you might remember, double, called Double Jeopardy with I think, Tommy Lee Jones. No nods at all? Yes, one. Thank you. Brilliant. Not just me and my wife as well. Um, that doesn't work here. Paul is tried three times. You've seen two of them. He's innocent and he's on trial again. And, and it struck me reading through chapter 26 and previous chapters as well that it's incredible to think about Paul's attitude to this. I don't see any complaint. I don't see any self-pity. There is this real quiet confidence in Paul. Just look at verse 2 of chapter 26. He says this, King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today. (laughs) Paul is innocent, yet he's still imprisoned and treated as though he's guilty. But he has this confidence about him. People are speaking against him. People are trying to kill him. This is hostile, yet Paul shows great courage and assurance in the face of great trial. Um, This is a chap on the screen now called... um, Reverend Dr. Bernard Randall. Um, I don't know if you remember, he's, you might have heard of his story, but um, he was a chaplain at uh, a college called Trent College in Nottingham. And in 2019, he was asked by the, the student body to, to give a talk on um, you know, a huge issue of human sexuality and gender. And uh, his big point, he didn't really kind of get into the ins and outs of it, but his big point to the students was to say, look, you should be free to hold whatever view you want to hold. And if that is a a biblical view of marriage, then so be it. He said this, um, Now when ideologies, that's a set of beliefs or opinions or ideas, compete, which we often get in life, uh, we should not descend into abuse. We should respect the beliefs of others even where we disagree. Above all, we need to treat each other with respect, not personal attacks. That's what loving your neighbor as yourself means. By all means, discuss, have a reasoned debate about beliefs, but while it's okay to try and persuade each other, no one should be told they must accept an ideology. Um, he goes on in his, his talk and says, you know, no one should be discriminated against on the basis of who they are. That is a Christian value of being made in God's image. And so the point of his talk is really, uh, you have the right to hold a biblical, just the right to hold and express a biblical view. Uh, you might be surprised to hear that following this sermon, uh, you can read it all online, um, Dr. Randall was fired for gross misconduct. Um, after an appeal, his, his sacking was overturned and he was given a final warning and told, 
in his future preaching not to broach any topic or express any opinion likely to cause offence or distress to members of the school body. Um, in 2020, he was furloughed anyway and then made redundant. Uh, but what might be even more alarming is that in this, the, uh, the safeguarding lead reported him to the anti-terror watchdog Prevent and uh, the local authority designated officer who steps in when there's concerns with adults working with children. It was all completely dismissed as nonsense. This is all at a school where his job description is, and I quote, to be the particular voice and embodiment of Christian values which are at the heart of Trent's ethos. It's exactly what he did. No one should be discriminated against. Everybody is valuable, made in the image of God. And his big thing was, you have the right, if you want to, to hold a biblical view of marriage. And so regardless of your views on human sexuality, what he was getting across was just, in a sense, free speech, the right to have it. He was innocent. And so in our Christian lives, there will be people who will speak badly of us, who will want to rubbish our reputation, even when you've done nothing wrong. And that hurts, doesn't it? But Paul goes through this three times. He just seems to have this settled attitude in his heart that he has an audience of one, the Lord Jesus. And as long as he's pleasing him, to him that is enough. Second contrast. Paul is the accused on trial, but he doesn't act like the accused. We were away in York um, over half term for a few, a few days. And one of the highlights our kids might tell you wasn't going to York Minster, a wonderful building, or the shambles, or whatever it might be. It would be that they got to watch on TV, get this, Judge Judy. Um, they loved it. They loved it. You know, never had a TV in their room. and like, whoa, cool. And uh, you know, if you're not familiar with Judge Judy, she's a judge in the States, and she has a TV show, and people bring all their cases to her, and they're really petty things like, you know, he owes me three months' rent, she stole my cat, whatever it is, and she sorts out these cases. And uh, in those cases, one of the parties is the accused, and one is the plaintiff, the person who brings the case. And uh, the accused will, will give evidence and, and do anything to show Judge Judy that they're innocent. I haven't done this, it's not true, etc., etc. But Paul here, even though he's innocent, he doesn't protest his innocence once. Chapter 26, he's appearing before Agrippa. And, and the background as to why he's there is because Festus, this governor, is sending Paul to Rome. But he says in, in chapter 25, verse 26, that he has absolutely nothing to write about Paul. That shows the strength of the case. And so he, he, he wants Paul to appear before Agrippa um, so that King Agrippa might be able to help him out and give him something to write. And rather than protest his innocence, rather than say they're making these things up, Paul gives his, his longest and most theologically explicit defense speech. You know, he is in a very intimidating setting. 25-23, the next day Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and prominent men of the cities. This is a who's who of the, of, of the city. And, and as you read through chapter 26, the dominant theme of it is the resurrection. That Jesus died, but he came back to life. Paul says in verse 6, the resurrection is something that was promised long ago. Paul shows that, that the resurrection of Jesus is the means by which the hope of Israel, what God's people have been looking forward to, is fulfilled. Verse 9, Paul goes on, um, 
He says, I was convinced that I should oppose this Jesus. He had every intention um, on this journey to Damascus to persecute and destroy the church. But the risen Jesus had other ideas. Paul was called to teach and tell the people of the risen Lord Jesus. And as he puts it in verse 18, this wonderful verse, to, to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. It's turning from alternative sources of illumination and control to seeking a genuine relationship with God. Um, I was listening to the Bible in a, in a year um, the other month. Um, I don't know if you, you used that, but Nicky Gumbel was, was speaking, talking about repentance, which Paul talks a little bit about later on. And, and often in our minds, we think repentance is a really bad, negative thing. Oh, God, turn that way and turn away from that. But actually, he pointed out, it's a really positive thing. Why would you not want to turn away from your own life, living your own way, and actually turn towards the Lord God who made you and do things his way? Towards the end of the speech, Paul once again teaches about the resurrection of verse 23, saying that it's the prophets who spoke of Jesus' resurrection. Paul's intention in this trial is evangelism. He wants to tell people of Jesus. Festus chirps in and says to him, Paul, you're out of your mind. He thinks Paul's claim is complete nonsense. Paul replies very calmly, well, in fact, I'm, I'm thinking and behaving very rationally. Paul turns to Agrippa, who he's before, who clearly has got some knowledge of the way Christianity has emerged. And, and he says this great phrase, Paul, in verse 26. The king's familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. Look, Agrippa, Christianity is not just the belief of a few deluded people. This is becoming a global movement. And Paul outright challenges Agrippa and says to him, do you believe the prophets? Do you believe in the resurrection, Agrippa? Agrippa replies, are you trying in this short time to make me a Christian, Paul? Paul's the accused, and yet he doesn't act like the accused. Instead of protesting his innocence, he sees this opportunity to tell others of Christ. And that is his primary concern. I find it incredibly annoying when I get a cold call on my phone. Uh, they're getting more and more sneaky because they come up with mobile numbers now. And you think, oh, that's interesting. I'll answer that one. Uh, whether it's, you know, you've been in an accident or, I don't know what's the latest one I've got. It's kind of, I've, I've bought some appliance and need some insurance for it. Um, my instant reaction is to say, no thanks, not interested, take me off your list, bye. That's generally what I'll do. Um, I knew somebody, though, who when someone cold called them, he would say something along the lines of, okay, I'll hear you out. I'll hear what you've got to say if you'll let me speak to you about something. And all now they go, okay. Um, and at the end of it, he would share the gospel with them. He'd hear out their pitch as to whatever it is, and he would speak to them of Christ. And he would say, I've been speaking with people like Jesus all over the world because all these call centers are everywhere. What a, an attitude shift that is. I think the reason I don't do something like that is, is not just because it's quite frightening, but, but also I just don't have the time. You know, I'm, I'm looking in at myself and I'm thinking, I've got my day to get on with, I'm not speaking to you. And, and maybe actually I'm ignoring opportunities God has placed in my way. And so do we look for opportunities to share Christ? Do we pray actively for opportunities to share 
Jesus. It doesn't need to be a big apologetic defense like Paul's here. It could be a simple, how can I pray for you? It could be a simple loving arm around a friend and asking them how they're doing and allowing that conversation to open things up. It could be inviting someone to a service here at St. Luke's. Third contrast, it seems like God uh, is out of control, but actually he's firmly in control. If you cast your mind back to the beginning of Acts, which I don't know when you did this, chapter 1, verse 8, probably a long time ago, I'd imagine, um, uh, you get the theme verse, I think, of the whole of the book. Chapter 1, verse 8 says this, but you, this is Jesus speaking to his, uh, his disciples before he ascends to heaven. He says, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on ye, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And, and right through the book of Acts, you see the gospel go to these places. Let me remind you of Acts chapter 9, verse 15. Uh, this is a, a Paul's testimony. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man, that's Paul, is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name. Acts 23, verse 11. Uh, the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. See, the connection between all these passages is that they are promises. And if you look through Acts, most of them have been fulfilled or are still being fulfilled. Chapter 1, verse 8. The gospel reached those places in the book of the Acts, in the book of Acts, ends of the earth. Remember Philip and the Ethiopian? Still happening today. The gospel is going out and still needs to. Chapter 9, 15. Paul, in chapter 26, who's he standing before? He's standing before a king of the Gentiles, Agrippa. And then chapter 23. Next slide. And. Um, you'll see Paul is winding his way to Rome. You see that God's purposes, his plans, they, they don't fail. It might look like on the surface when you read this stuff, like, like the gospel has failed, that it's, it's out of control, Paul's in prison, he's being mocked. But actually this is all happening as part of God's settled will, his control. Sometimes people might refer to life like the image of a, of a duck on water. You know, like it looks very serene on the surface, but underneath little legs are going crazy. Life's like that. It might look great on the outside, but actually inwardly it's really not good. Actually, what we see here in Acts is the other way around. It's as though the duck is upside down. These legs you can see going and the head is serene underwater. Because it looks like it's all going crazy here, but underneath the surface God is in control. And I think this is the reason why Paul is so at peace and has this quiet confidence that he's not rushing to protest his innocence because he's so aware of, of God's plans and purposes and his care and his providence. It's an amazing attitude, isn't it? It's an attitude of, of the heart at our deepest level that would cultivate peace, not anxiety, freedom, not slavery, contentment, not discontentment especially in the uncertainties of life. And so do we notice his providence? Do we notice that God cares and directs all things in our life? Do we look for his hand 
working in our life. I wonder in hearing these three trials of Paul, it might sound slightly familiar to you, someone on trial, but completely innocent, because we've been here before, haven't we? In Luke chapter 23, the Roman governor, Pilate, in the face of charges brought by the Jews that Jesus claims to be a king, says, I find no basis for a charge against him. Jesus, in his trial, doesn't give any answer, doesn't protest his innocence. He goes back to Pilate again, and Pilate says, I find no basis for the charges against you. You see three affirmations of innocence, and yet Jesus is treated as though he's guilty. But God is firmly in control of both of these events. With Jesus, he brought about the redemption of the world through his death and resurrection. And with Paul, he's going to ensure that the message of redemption, the new life, gets to Rome. And as you come to the end of the book of Acts over the next few weeks, you'll see this journey to Rome unfold. And you'll see, as you, you saw in chapter 1, verse 8, you'll see the movement of this unstoppable gospel 